Thank you for tuning in to Lunar Cat's third series, Sobriety. We are going to touch base with three individuals who are not only people that I admire, but individuals who created a safe space for me when I stopped drinking in March of 2020. They continue to inspire me, and I'm so excited to share their stories with you. Welcome to Lunar Cats. Um, We're here with Dan Dunn, who's located in China. Uh, We're going to kick off our sobriety series. Um, And a little background, I met Dan and I actually went to high school together, which is crazy. That's, I think we're over 10 years now. Are we? I I try not to think about how long it's been. (laughs) (laughs) I think there was a 10 year anniversary like last year. But anyways, uh, I wanted to interview you because when I stopped drinking back in March of 2020, we had kind of like reconnected over Instagram and you kind of created like a really safe space that I'm grateful for as far as, you know, my changing relationship with alcohol. So, um, I just really wanted to have you on here to share your story and, uh, let people know what cool stuff you're up to. So how long have you been in China or just like overseas in general? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I know, uh, yeah, I I don't, I don't think about high school a ton, which I think is healthy. Um, (laughs) I do, I do do think it's like uh, such a formative four years of your life, right? That you then spend the next 30 years, 50 years for some people, right? Rethinking um, and like going through. And I try not to hold on to too much of that stuff. But, um, uh, and as a result, I haven't thought about, you know, when we met in high school. And I imagine that, yeah, it was, it's probably, Life has changed quite a bit, but, but yeah, anyways, I've been in, uh, I've been in Shanghai now for a year. So I moved here last year from Hong Kong and I was in Hong Kong for about three years. Um, and yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a wild year. Well, it's a wild time to be in Hong Kong and then it's, it's been a wild time to be in Shanghai as well. <laughs> and you're, you're working for a university there or what's no, your... So I- That's a good question. I, I get that a lot. Um, <laughs> so I, I, Went back to school, right, when I got sober um, and uh, and then stayed at MSU and did grad school and taught there for a couple of years and did study abroad stuff. Um, and now I work for I work for a company that specializes in university trips to to China. Um, so before the pandemic, we did mostly U.S. and U.K. universities coming into China, um, you know, arranging speakers, arranging their tours. Sometimes we do very um, off the beaten trail trips, right, like camping on the Great Wall or hiking in Tibet, things like that. And then other times we do very kind of, you know, MBA programs in Shanghai with businesses. And so, you know, post-pandemic now, we still do a lot of that. We do it for usually domestic schools, so schools in China, Um but then we also, we do a lot of virtual stuff too, which is, which is, yeah, it's pretty fun. It's a nice, it's like a, just a really nice way to, to see China, right. And to, to do something that I, I believe in, which is travel and, and you must as well, because you also live abroad. I do. I was thinking about it and I, I don't know anyone else, um, that we graduated with that lives overseas or, or in a foreign country, actually. Um, I don't know. I was just randomly thinking about that. I think it's really cool. I've lived overseas now for six years, which is crazy. All in Germany? Uh, yeah, all in Germany. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, you can tell me, like, growing up in the Midwest, um, like, I knew the world existed, right? 
Um, and I had, you know, a pretty good idea that like there were other places, but places like Hong Kong or Shanghai, right. They seemed, you know, like a completely different world. Um, and we didn't have, you know, the Midwest in, in beautiful Lansing, Michigan, um, <laughs> Like we didn't, you know, there was like, there were international students, right? And there was, you know, international people, but the idea of living abroad that I could do that never really occurred to me. Same. Yeah. And now that like a significant amount of time has passed, I would move somewhere else in a heartbeat. Um, and I feel like the difference between China and Germany is pretty like stark, very different. Um, but I feel that even with that being said, we both experienced some pretty extreme like COVID measures or lockdowns, but I think you definitely caught the brunt of that. Um, just yeah. some things that you listed online and like, I, yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Because I feel like that was some next level experience <laughs> for you. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it's been a lot, right? Hong Kong. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I feel very fortunate. You know, I think I've never had COVID. Um, I've never thought that I had COVID, um, which is pretty, pretty remarkable, I think, in the world today, right? And so I am more grateful for that. I try to maintain a gratitude for that because, you know, the, the things that we've had to do for that to be the case have been not very much fun and pretty painful. And like, I just had dinner with, you know, my best friends who are now leaving China. Um, like so many other of my friends have left China because it's just really tough, right? You still have to quarantine for a week in a hotel coming back flights, a direct flight from the U S to China right now is 6,000 us dollars. Right. Um, <laughs> because they've capped the flights. Right. And so it's, it's just, it's impossible effectively to, to travel home. Um, and I'm really glad I could this summer, but, but yeah, so, you know, so I did two years of the pandemic in Hong Kong, which, um, you know, it, it was great because I got to explore Hong Kong and, and I spent my days hiking and climbing mountains and, and in a lot of ways that was wonderful, but I couldn't see family, right? I couldn't leave Hong Kong. And then I moved to China and, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I did two months in quarantine last year and, and probably in total, over the course of the last year. So I did two months straight, right? Shanghai was locked down. We did not leave the apartment and the city was not open for two months. Um, but I've done probably, I think, a total of three months with, you know, leaving. Since I came to China, I had to do two weeks in a hotel. From Hong Kong to China, you had to do two weeks in a hotel. Um, and so I did that in a very grim hotel. And uh, this is a great story of like my, you know, my welcome back to China. So I went to this hotel, I crossed the border from Hong Kong to China, who are both closed, but also closed to each other, which didn't make a ton of sense. And, uh, you know, they put you up in a hotel, you cross the border, and they're like, this is your hotel. And they put me up in a Vienna hotel, which is like a very shitty, I hope you don't mind if I swear, a very shitty China brand of hotels that like bases itself on like ancient Roman uh, design. Um, And so I went in there, and it was very dirty, and I... And they put you in a big WeChat group with everyone in the hotel. And so they did that. And like, I started getting bug bites, you know, like a few days in and everyone in the hotel was like, people were ordering tents and sleeping on the in tents on the ground. Cause everyone had bug bites. And so I messaged the hotel. I was like, Hey, like I have these bug bites. Like I think it's bed bugs or it's fleas. Um, and they were like, Oh, you should probably just keep your room cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> No. Yeah, that was grim. That was grim. 
I feel like I also remember seeing that certain food was delivered to you. Like at, at a certain point, you didn't have a say in what you were eating necessarily, um, no. or you couldn't get anything else either. Well, so when you come in, when I came in originally, right, and I did my two weeks in the hotel, they like have set meals. And when I, I recently came back into China, they like have set meals. You can't order food. It's what they give you. And the food is, is not great. Um, but when we were locked down, so then Shanghai locked down, right, which is, you know, a completely separate thing from like, you know, when you're coming in and out that you're going to be locked down, you have to do like a week or two weeks of quarantine, right? Um, but yeah, Shanghai locked down. And, uh, you know, we, we had a little bit of advance notice. They said like, oh, we're going to lock down for five days. We have all these cases. And so I went over to my girlfriend's house with my yoga mat and like, we had food, right? We were like, okay, we'll get like 10 days worth of food, right? Um, and it ended up being two months that we were, um, that nothing was open. Um, and so we, you know, about two weeks in, like we were eating cans of beans and like, you know, we called the government helpline at one point and we're like, Hey, like, can you get us some food? Uh, like we don't have any food anymore. Um, and they were like, Oh yeah, we'll call you back later. Um, and they never did. <laughs> oh my God. It was like, yeah, genuinely for a month of that time, it was, you know, the main thing that I did was try to find food uh, for my girlfriend and I to eat, you know? Wow. And we, uh, like, and, and, and keep in mind, we had, like, you know, we have money and, like, we're foreigners and, like, you know, we have money to do these things. And plenty of people did not, right? Wow. Were some of your neighbors, like, struggling at all or, like, in the building that you were staying in? Yeah, so we she she lived in a lane house, and so it was like a small. There were only like five families around, but yeah, the guy on the first floor, like we always made sure he had food. We got really lucky because my girlfriend's school eventually delivered food to us. Right, like they really came through and delivered. It was like raw chicken, like an entire like chicken and all this stuff, and we were just like, oh my gosh, carrots. Um, <laughs> Like, uh, I think, I think within the first month, like the government delivered food once or twice and, uh, maybe after like three weeks and it was like a bag, it was like one can of spam and like a cabbage and, uh, and like some rice. Um, and so when the, my girlfriend's school delivered food, it was like Christmas. We could not believe it. Uh, like we had actual food. Is she a student or does she also, does she work for a university there? She teaches. She teaches primary school. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. She uh, she teaches primary school, and uh, she just switched to uh, British school, actually. But before, she was teaching kind of at, like, an American-esque school here in China. Um, and, yeah, they delivered me food, so I'm eternally grateful for them. But, um, but yeah, most people did not have that, right? Yeah, that's, I, I'm really curious if there was a point during any of those quarantines where it like really tested, you know, like your mental capacity to, I don't know, just kind of be surviving in that way without real, like your family and our longest friends. I mean, it's great that you have your girlfriend there, but you know, like that, like initial support system that we all have, um, that was really hard for me during the lockdown here. And I don't yeah. even feel it was ex as extreme as yours. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't fun, but in some ways, I look back on it like weirdly fondly um, because you know, like my girlfriend and I got into certain routines, and uh, it was 
you know, it, it was it was okay. You ca- you almost got used to it, right? Which is bizarre to say that you get used to two months of not leaving your apartment or being able to go to the grocery store or go outside, right? Um, yes. But yeah, we did have each other, and I had friends who you know live in city apartments that are you know ten feet by ten feet, and and were there for two months. Um, and we had a balcony, and I could sneak out into the lane and like you know jump rope, and so uh, we had it really. We had it really good, but that was the trade-off, right? Like for never thinking I had COVID, um, that was it. And now, like now it just feels kind of never-ending, right? Um, I think it's in some ways it feels harder now, right? With all of, all of our friends from China leaving China and, you know, it just feels like China's never going to get rid of zero COVID. And uh, do we want to do this the rest for the next three, four years, right? So before you moved overseas, how long had you been sober? Yeah, I think so. Um, five years, I think. Uh, so I got sober when I was 22. Um, and now I'm 32, which man, I feel kind of old. Um, no. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think you, I mean, you can tell the listeners, I don't mind. Uh, you know, in high school, I think it was even, you know, I went to detox for the first time in high school, right? Junior year of high school for pain medication. Um, and so I think it was pretty obvious to everyone that like, you know, Dan does not really like use drugs or drink in like a normal way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I also feel like in some ways, a lot, a lot of people were doing drugs and drinking and it was in a sense kind of, I don't want to say normal, but it was like a social aspect as well of all, like going to Lansing Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, right. It was like you know, it was a, a Midwestern, like, you know, kind of, it was a Midwestern private school and people had money to spend on drugs. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, I always think it's, you know, and, and I think probably there was more drug use perhaps than other places. Like I think, you know, a year after we graduated, uh, like one of our classmates was murdered over a drug deal. Right. Which I don't think is too normal by another classmate. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was a crazy, crazy time. It, it feels like over a lifetime ago, I feel so kind of like removed from that lifestyle now. And I've, I haven't even, I've only been sober over two years. So, uh, yeah, it's, do you feel like even though you did a detox in high school, that, that still led you down kind of like a road? of destruction and into college or what kind of transpired with that? Yeah, no, I mean, so I went to detox in high school and I remember very much just being like, I want to be rid of, you know, the physical symptoms of being addicted to like alcohol and, and like opiates. Right. Um, and, uh, they were like, Oh, you know, you should go to 12 step meetings. And I went and I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not at all interested in that stuff. Right. Like that is not for me. Um, and you know, I spent, you know, six years kind of in and out of 12 step meetings. And and I went to college and to play, to play football, play soccer. And, uh, you know, it was, it was like, I would, I started really drinking and, you know, then I would stop and and drop out of college. And I spent a lot of time, you know, I say, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in my parents' basement and I was, you know, ostensibly living in my parents' basement, but my parents had also asked me not to come around anymore. Um, and so it was not the easiest living situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, 
it is funny right now i live in shanghai and things just feel very kind of removed from you know midwestern lansing michigan where you know i got sober and spent you know a long time uh being sober and living and working there uh before i moved abroad do you think that in order for you to have moved or accomplished what you've reached at this point you you had to be sober in all aspects yeah i mean yeah, 100%. I mean, for me, right, like the way that I drank and used drugs was always, uh, that's all I want to do. <laughs> you know, I remember the first time I drank uh, being like, man, this is amazing. I'm going to do this every day for the rest of my life. Um, and that's what I did. And so the idea that I would ever accomplish anything when I was drinking or, or using drugs, like, is, you know, still to this day, right? I've sometimes my ego gets the better of me and I think like, oh, you know, I'm pretty successful. I got this and that. I go to the gym every day. Um, but I still have no illusion that like any of it would be possible if I hadn't have gotten sober. And I was just really, I just feel very fortunate to have gotten sober so young. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to like, and I think, I think, you know, the key to that is to like turn that, you know, I feel fortunate and gratitude, grateful into, you know, showing up to, to stuff and being helpful in either 12 step meetings or in like in my day to day life. Was there a, what, like your initial first like 12 step meeting that was a turning point for you or was it someone that you met at a meeting or what was that first kind of turning point with that program? Um, yeah. I mean, I remember I kept coming around and being like, ah, like, you know, this sounds fine. It was the God stuff. You know, you and I both went to a Catholic school and I was not at all interested in the God stuff and it's very God heavy. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was for a long time, like, you know, I've seen people, you know, we, I think went to a Catholic school that was not like the best example of Catholicism or at least that's what I chose to see. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got into 12 step meetings and they were like, you know, you have to do a higher power. I just remember thinking, yeah, this is not, this is not going to work for me. Um, I can't do that. Right. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. And I'm just not interested in it. And so I spent six years coming around and thinking like, okay, I'll do everything but that, or I'll do it, you know, I'll try to do it my way. Um, and eventually uh, you know, I was just kind of out of answers. Um, and I remember I went to, I went to a meeting and, uh, you know, I went up to a guy that I was friends with and he was like, I was like, listen, man, like, I just really like to be drunk. Um, <laughs> I like to be drunk more than you guys do. Uh, this stuff doesn't work for me. Um, and he was like, well, why don't we try it? Uh, and you know, I was just kind of, it wasn't like one big turning point moment. Um, it was just, you know, I was just kind of ready to be done with it all. And, and, uh, like I, you know, it was either I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to try this, this stuff. And so I tried this stuff instead of that. Right. Hmm. Yeah, no, I've, I've actually never gone to an AA meeting. I, but I feel that moving up to me, like not, not drinking anymore. It was a bunch of little moments sort of also like that, not necessarily at an AA meeting, but meeting people who I could see a reflection of myself in like, oh man, I also don't think I'll accomplish anything unless alcohol just isn't a part of my life anymore. Mm. Um, Yeah. 
it was always this kind of like clinging act of like, oh, I can, I can control myself, but then you're really like not in control at all. That was it, right? It's like, I know, like, I know my relationship with alcohol is, is uh, unhealthy and I can't, you know, once I start, I know I'm not going to stop, but there's always this idea that this time I'll control it or like this time I'll enjoy it or this time I'll do this or that. Right. And it just never worked out that way. Mm-hmm. I even went back cause I journal quite a bit. And after I had stopped drinking for a while, I went back and read some of my journals from when I was drinking pretty heavily. And I had even written down at one point, like, I, like I'll never be anything unless I stop drinking alcohol. Mm. So it's almost, it's like I wrote it out. It's just crazy what your body already knows before you're willing to accept it as the truth. Um, And I think it's so, it's so normal in Western culture that everything that you do, you get married, you graduate, you have a drink, you break up, you have a drink, like a hard day in the office, you drink, you know, I don't know. It just creates such a codependency with alcohol and I worked in breweries through college and it kind of like normalized this culture that I really liked the community in. But there was a period where I was like, how can I be part of this community if I'm not drinking every single day? Mm. Um, yeah. That's so tough. I, I mean, so did you, did you find your friends? People. What did, when you got sober in Germany, right. And you didn't do, cause I think one of the best things about 12 step stuff, right. It's like, it's a community of people and, and often, right. It's like, a community of people to be helpful to. And so I'm curious, like, how did you, did you have to make new friends? How did you kind of fill that time and space in your life? I think that everything kind of came to a head for me at the, like the stars kind of aligned because I stopped drinking right before the first like big lockdown happened. And it kind of forced me to spend time by myself when previously I would spend time in bars around people who weren't really friends. They were just like, you know, local acquaintances. Um, But the reason I would hang out in bars is because I didn't want to be alone with myself. So it was Mm. this, but I think naturally I'm very introverted and the only way I was able to socialize was to drink um, or to be in that type of setting. So I think it kind of, it worked out perfect for me that I stopped drinking when I did because I think I would have drank myself into a deep, deep stupor had I entered the lockdown, uh, still drinking quite a bit. If that makes yeah, sense. That would be, no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I think that would be, yeah, incredibly, incredibly difficult. I mean, one of the best things in my mind that's come out of COVID has been, uh, you know, 12 set meetings online now. And so I still go, Largely, I can still, you know, I still see my same guys that I got sober with, right? I got sober with a group of five guys and uh, I still get to go to meetings with them and I still get to, you know, kind of participate in Lansing stuff um, from China, which is, which is, yeah, which is pretty, pretty cool. Are you a sponsor for anyone else? Is that like part of like running AA meetings or... Yeah. Yeah. So like a, a sponsor is typically someone that takes you through the 12 steps. Um, and yeah, yeah, I have a sponsor and then yeah, I sponsor people. And so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, I think maybe some people might think it's like a life coach. It's not like a life coach, right? It's, 
you know, I have experience in this one very narrow thing. <laughs> um, but that one very narrow thing also has, you know, big implications for the rest of our lives. Um, and so, you know, often I'll go to my sponsor with issues like, you know, I'm, I'm resentful at my work or, or I'm struggling with this or that. And, and he'll say like, oh, well, you should probably go to an, uh, you should probably go to a meeting and uh, you should probably try to be helpful to someone. And like, let's do this mini step about it. Um, and uh, it's not like he gives me advice, right? Like if I ever went to my sponsor and said, hey, should I do this? I think he'd say like, why don't you get quiet and pray about it? Mm. So how did you come, how did you come to cope with like the higher power aspect? Do you get to choose like what your higher power is or so like yeah. it could be the universe, like if someone wanted it to be the universe, that's what it could be. Absolutely. I mean, kind of the way that I think about it is like, you know, when I'm in nature, uh, when I'm hiking mountains and, uh, you know, when I'm outdoors, I really feel, you know, a strong peace. And like, to me, in those moments, it's like, okay, like, this is so beautiful that like something must have created this, right? Um, like the idea that this beauty came out of chance is, is probably very unlikely. And like, that is often enough, right? Or like when I have particularly good moments with people where I'm like, man, like that amount of love does not seem, you know, like it could just happen by accident, Right. Um, and so I kind of, you know, take those moments and like those moments of connection. And I don't believe in, you know, a, a Judeo Christian God that like sits up there and is mad at me for watching porn. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and like none of that stuff. Right. And it's, it's very much, you know, a trust in the universe or this kind of just positive thing. Right. That, yeah. um, you know, has created this beauty. And I, I, and for some reason, right after I did the 12 steps, I've been able to like, let it just be that. Um, and like all the big questions, right. All the things that for so long, like, oh man, but we have wars and we have rape and we have all this awful stuff in this world. Like how could a higher power, like have that happen? Right. Like those things don't, I'm able to disconnect the two more, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. That's a really like, I also feel the most connected when I'm in nature. And I also have noted that you go searching for snakes, which is something <laughs> I wouldn't do, but I'm, I don't think I know anyone else that actively does that or was doing that. <laughs> I just want to be clear. I'm not like a weird snake guy. Like I don't own snakes. I, um, but it was really just like my best friend in Hong Kong and I, uh, who's like, you know, this, like 40 something British dad, uh, who is you know, just a great guy. We played football together and we would just go hiking. And then we were like, Oh man, like we should hike at night. Cause it's fun. Uh, kind of scary. And so we started hiking at night cause it's kind of fun and scary and like get our head torches on. And then uh, we were like, Oh, like, is that a snake? And we saw a snake and then it was like, well, let's go hiking at night and let's do it to find snakes because it's fun and scary. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and now like every chance we get, right. It's, it's hiking at night with our head torches on trying to find king cobras or like all these, you know, wild snakes in the middle of nowhere. And it's just, it's just a good chance to be outside. Um, now that you've been sober for a while, do you find that you're also friends with people that like still drink or are most of your friends also like also don't drink? 
Yeah, good question. So when I lived in Lansing, all my like my friend group was all people that were sober, right? And like most of my sober friends married each other. Um, and, you know, it was just like a big kind of sober community. And then I moved to Hong Kong and, you know, there's not as many, there weren't as many young people that were sober. And so, uh, you know, I still was a part of the 12 step fellowship, but it wasn't very many people my age. And so, uh, you know, my football team became a much bigger kind of part of my life and where I found community. Um, and those guys, you know, they're all British lads, like they drink heavy. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, like, and my, you know, my girlfriend now, my partner, she drinks. Um, and, you know, most of my friends here in, Sh- in Shanghai that aren't part of 12 stuff, stuff drink, right? And so, um, and it's, you know, most of the time it's just like, it hits 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and I go home and my girlfriend stays out and she gets home later. And, uh, like, I don't think any of my friends mind that, right? And for a long time, I think that would have bothered me. Like, oh, I'm not fun or I'm not this or that, but... I just get tired and, uh, and I don't think anyone cares. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, I find that I just have to have firm boundaries for what I'm comfortable with and settings that I want to be in. Um, I, yeah, I only recently got comfortable going like leading up to the pandemic. I was bartending actually at the, my local like Irish pub and it was a super fun time. And I'm glad I had that experience of like bartending. Uh, but I only recently was able to go there and like have dinner and sit at the bar and just like hang out and visit the people and the owners. Mm -hmm. Um, And that took me like two years to be able to do that because I used to just drink there all the time. (laughs) What? Like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a full circle experience for me too, which is, it's kind of silly, but it was like a big, step for me personally. I was like, Oh, I don't feel like triggered at all being in a, in this bar where I used to drink all the time. Well, and you have to do it right. And like, I wouldn't do it, you know, I wouldn't have done it a week sober or, you know, I wouldn't tell new people like, Oh, you know, hang out in bars. You'll, you'll really yes. feel great. Um, <laughs> but you know, you didn't get sober to not live life. And, uh, you know, I happen to have friends that drink and I go to bars and go to clubs and, uh, uh, yeah, it's just it's just part of part of life, right? And uh, you get comfortable. You do it once, and then you're like, "Oh, really? No one cares," and and that makes a big difference. Yeah, I agree. Did you did you ever have anxiety when you first stopped drinking about like seeing old friends who maybe maybe your whole relationship was kind of always based around like partying? Like, did did you find that those friendships stopped or? Um, did you yeah. somehow come back together with those people at like a different time or? I mean, you know, it's, for me, you know, some of those people I'm still friends with. Right. Um, and I see and, and whatnot. Um, but a lot of those relationships weren't particularly deep. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because of who I was at the time as well. I was not really capable of having deep relationships. And so, most of those relationships, um, you know, I don't, I don't see the people very often or, or talk to them. Um, but it's also been a long time, right? You know, most of my, you know, most of my friends now, people I've been friends with five, five, six years are like, you know, have never seen me drink. And so, you know, I think to them, the idea that I used to drink is quite, is quite strange. Mm. I think that changes, yeah. right? I think that changes over time. I, but it does take time, I think, to figure out which friends you do have that connection with, even without drinking, and which ones you don't. 
Yeah, I I had a lot of um, anxiety the like the first summer I was coming home sober because I had gotten sober sort of like by myself um, living over here, and I was anxious to return to see old friends, you know. And I just found that the people who didn't comment or even like bat an eye about me not drinking anymore were the ones that were meant to always stick around. Um, right. Yeah. But I didn't know that. So, you know, there was like a ton of anxiety leading up to it. And then the moment it was fine, I was like, wow, like I was freaking out for nothing, like no reason at all. <laughs> well, I think that's normal, right? It's, it's definitely a thing that, you know, uh, what does Brene Brown say? Like first times are scary. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when you're like me and I don't know how it was for you, but, you know, I did everything for years um, under the influence. And so, you know, going to the bank was the first time going to the bank uh, sober, right? Cooking dinner. I hadn't done that. And so all those things were, were new and scary as a result. Yeah, that's, I, yeah, I never thought about it like that. I was also thinking about how a lot of my traveling initially in Europe, like I was drunk the whole time. And now I've returned to some of those places sober and i'm like oh my god this is so much more fun and i have like more money because i'm not just spending it on alcohol you know what i mean like the amount of money saved from not drinking i wish i could like track and know an, an exact like dollar amount because it's probably sickening well now but uh, now the like the problem that i have is you know i see my friends drink or my girlfriend drink and she spends you know x amount of money and so like you know then i go and get a foot massage and i'm like well that's you know i don't spend any money on alcohol so i can buy this or that um <laughs> and so you got to be careful now to avoid that trap where it's like oh i can buy anything because i'm not uh, i'm not drinking <laughs> Yes. Oh, no, I, I completely like, oh, I'll just buy every coffee. Like I'll go to every single coffee shop and drink a specialty coffee. <laughs> That's yep. like my go-to. Um, oh, absolutely. I think, I think, you know, did that today. <laughs> have you ever uh, experienced like going into a bar and being treated like disrespectfully because you weren't drinking or like asked to leave or give up a seat or anything like that? Uh, you know, only one time, one time in Shanghai, we went to a bar um, and I went with my, like this good group of friends that I have here. Um, uh, my, my two best friends are Irish, right? And they like, you know, I moved here uh, and I played football with him in Hong Kong and like, you know, moved here. And so they introduced me to their friend group and we all became very quick friends quickly. And we all went to a bar and I'd been here like a couple of months and uh, the bar was like, oh, you have to order a drink. And I was like, well, you don't have anything that's not alcohol there. Like, you have to order a drink. And all my friends were like, he's not ordering a drink. Um, <laughs> like, it's not going to happen. And, uh, <laughs> um, and like, they were quite defensive. And I was like, no, it's fine, guys. Like, let's just order an extra drink and like, you can drink it. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, uh, but I think that was like a weird kind of China things were lost in translation moment. Um, Cause I've never, you know, in like, yeah, like, you know, we go out after the games, right after like, you know, soccer football games and, and uh, we chat about and like the guys are drinking, right? And, and no one is ever, everyone has always been so respectful, right? And I feel like that is like the moment everyone would think, oh, somebody's going to give you shit or somebody's going to mm -hmm. do something. And that's really never, 
never been the case. I've found I've been in a couple situations where someone has commented on why I'm not drinking or how come there isn't a drink in my hand. And I've and initially I think in the beginning, those things like I took them very personally and they like they really hurt my feelings. But in that moment I didn't know that per I didn't have an established relationship with that person to where bringing that up to them was, you know, like going to be something I would do. But now that I'm like further from when I stopped, I just find that people who have an insecurity with their relationship with alcohol tend to make more off the cuff comments about it. Like, Oh, Mm. you used to be like, you're an alcoholic or like, Oh, you don't drink because you you can't control it. Or so just something very like, not like honestly rude. Um, But that person is like so self removed from their situation that they don't even realize the implication of their words, like how they're saying it. It's not what they're saying. It's how they're saying it. Well, I think I wonder too, I'm I'm curious now, like, you know, I recently, I recently read the culture map, which I found an underwhelming book, but uh, they did talk a lot about Germany being, you know, a low, a low context, you know, very direct communication style. And so I wonder are German people, did they make those comments more regularly than other nationalities? Um, no, actually I've, even with the drinking culture in Germany, it, I don't, I don't feel like a German has ever batted an eye at me because I find that in some, in a lot of German pubs, it's not uncommon for people to be drinking like non-alcoholic beer. Mm, Like, so I feel like that culture is more accepting because it's open. I've, I've actually had those things said to me by Americans. So it's. And and just as a perspective where I live in Germany, um, I live in Ryland Falls, which is one of the states here, but it's the, it has the largest saturation of Americans outside of the U S. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And they, and a lot of armed service people, right? Yes. Yep. Um, army and air force bases here. And then there's a NATO base, uh, Ramstein and that's where I work as a contractor. Ah, Okay. Yeah, yeah, I would guess. I mean, my guess is too, like drinking and army culture probably go hand in hand, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I think for a lot of military members, if if they could have like a little bit of CBD or some type of cannabis, like they probably wouldn't drink at all. Mm. Um, and so I've seen a lot of people struggle with alcohol who are in the military simply because of experiences that they've had. And when you're not given the tools to like, you know, deal with that mental headspace, drinking seems like the best possible thing that you can do. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it, it like, it makes you feel good, right? You know? Um, and for a lot of people, I think it's a really helpful tool for that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind I think it's honestly kind of a big deal with like Joe Biden. You know, if he if they don't recognize marijuana anymore at a federal level, like I wonder what that would mean for like the, you know, Department of Defense, the DOD, military members. Uh because I think to a certain capacity it would help so many people. Hmm. Um and yeah, that would be a really interesting thing to experience working on a base and seeing something like that kind of trickle down. Yeah, I, I bet. I bet. I mean, I just, uh, 
I, I can only imagine. Is it is it strange? To, like, is things like dating since you're in Germany, right? But you're in like a very kind of American part of Germany. Is it? I imagine things like that. Do they feel like? How much of it is German culture? How much of it do you, can you still kind of have American culture? Can you pick and choose? You can pick and choose. And that's why it's so hard to imagine leaving this place because I have like little America, like the base mm. at my doorstep or, you know, like at my fingertip, but then I live on the economy and I get all of the benefits of like the amazing food and just access to healthcare, like all of the good things about living in Germany or just in the EU in general. Um, but it's, it's also an interesting time because we're experiencing like an energy crisis and with the winter approaching and like, you know, wait, there's a war next door. It's mm-hmm. uh, very, yeah, I just could have never imagined this or being here this long. And then everything that's going on in the States, it's kind of like, well, what's, you know? Um, yeah, it's a lot to think about and process, but it's interesting being near the base because I feel more informed and plugged into these type of issues. So that makes sense. A, I know it's a balance. I was going to say, I know here, um, like, you know, the zero COVID stuff is, is really, annoying and awful right but we're also very insulated and you know i live in a bubble that in a lot of ways is quite nice right we don't have inflation um at near the levels that other places do we don't have an energy crisis um i have a lot of i mean i try to find gratitude for that stuff right because otherwise i think it's really easy to just be like oh zero covid china sucks um you know i can't visit home i can't do this and that but at the same time we're we're very much, you know, I'm very much insulated from all of that stuff. Yeah. That's, do you, do you find that you're like fully comfortable there now? Like you've completely adjusted? Uh, yeah, sometimes I got, I have a great, I have a great story. So this past week, um, so my girlfriend and I live in a lane house. We just moved into it together. Right. And it's, it's three stories. Um, it's in the French concession, beautiful. Right. Um, and, you know, it's very clearly our house. Um, and this will make sense in a minute. Like you open a gate, it has our like number on it. And it's, you come in and there are like photos of us in our living room. And it's, you know, you walk up the very steep stairs. Uh, the second room is an office uh, and the third floor is our bedroom, right? And so I got a call the other night. Uh, I was playing poker at a friend's house that happened to be just down the block. And my girlfriend called me and said, there's a woman in our bedroom. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, and she sent me, she sent me a photo of this, like this little old woman and I couldn't tell what was going on. And my girlfriend speaks no Chinese. Right. Um, And like, my Chinese is okay. And so I was like, we'll put her on the phone. And so like, she puts her on the phone and like, I can't hear this woman. And I was with some native speakers. I was like, can you guys try to help me talk to this woman? And like, pretty clearly, like we could tell it wasn't working. And so I was like, all right, I'm coming home. And so I ran home. And uh, like, you know, this woman is just now walking into like our front, like gate, our yard area. And I was like, why are you in our house? Um, <laughs> like, what is going on? Um, and so it turns out, and keep in mind, this woman is, I don't know how else to say this, Mariah. She is ancient. She was like 95. Okay. Oh my God. And, and so she walked all the way up into our house, into our bedroom. Keep in mind, my girlfriend didn't have a shirt on. She comes in, doesn't knock, just walks into the bedroom. And the first thing she does after my girlfriend screams is tell her to put a mask on. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it turns out, it turns out that she just wanted to ask if we had broken her bicycle because her bike, she's a neighbor and her bicycle was broken. And she wanted to ask us at 10 o'clock at night <laughs> if we had broken it. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, it is, uh, it is, yeah. So like, yes, I feel comfortable, but that stuff still, and like, she does not, she does not give a shit. Like, you know, like most of the other houses like this are subdivided. Um, and so, you, you know, you'd have six or seven families living in this space. And so I think in her mind, she was like, I'm just going to wander in and see who I see. Right. Cause that's what you can do. Um, and you know, she's, she she does not care in the slightest, right? She I, I think at a certain point, I'm sure she realized that it was our home, uh, but she also wanted to ask about her bicycle, right? <laughs> Damn. So I'm trying to imagine what the Lane house looks like. Is it just, is it like its own unit? Like, was the door locked? I'm just trying to picture, I'm so, sure it's, Yeah. We actually don't lock the door. Uh, um, uh, and we usually never have to, right? And the, and the woman who was in it before us was like, oh, yeah, I never locked the door. And it's kind of a hassle to lock the doors. And China is so safe. Um, we live in the heart of downtown. And, um, you know, it's safe because they have a lot of cameras everywhere and, uh, you know, kind of a, a regime that does stuff. But... Um, but it's incredibly safe. Like, you know, my girlfriend goes, can go for a run at 2 a.m. Um, oh, and it no. never feels, you know, you can be in no part of China. Do you ever feel, you know, unsafe? Um, but the lane house is, uh, it's like a lot of lane houses, not ours. Like you walk in and there's like a community kitchen and then they'll have like subdivided floors for foreigners or some Chinese families will live. And so it's like a shared space, but then there will be like solo space in the shared space. And we just happen to have one that's, you know, it's just straight up. It's in like a little lane. And uh, um, yeah, it's just like we have this three-story building that's, you know, there are other apartments on either side. But when you go in our little gate, it's just ours the whole way up. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the neighbors just wander in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would definitely lose my shit if that happened and someone was just in. Yeah, there's no fucking way. There's no <laughs> way. But I do, to, to, but to ta- speak on that, I do feel really safe in Germany and where I live. Um, and yeah, I feel like bad, like, especially as a woman, like bad things can happen anywhere and you can you know, live your life feeling scared, but you know, I, I don't want to, I don't do that. I can't do that anymore. Sometimes I am still scared, but like, I feel like screaming is a good tactic. Like if someone approaches me and it's like weird and it's dark, I just start screaming. <laughs> You're like, I, she's crazy. We're not going to mess with her. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't relate. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a white dude. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, but I just know in Asia, right? Like that's a pretty, uh, a pretty remarkable thing. Um, and yeah, we're like, that's one of the things, right? Like China in so many ways, it's like, why do you stay there with all this stuff? And it's like, well, yeah, there's that though too. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. It's definitely like, and I, I'm also kind of like in the back country of Germany. So I'm not mm. in a very big city. Like I'm, an hour and some change from like Frankfurt. And then, you know, so I also feel like I'm living in the, I'm definitely living in like the country. 
Hmm. Even though I'm in like the downtown of my village and I'm doing like air quotes, the downtown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess it's a little different than the small city of uh, like Shanghai, I think has 29 million people, but at the same time, okay. Shanghai is also the size of Delaware. So, so um, Whoa. it's not, it's not quite the same, right? <laughs> yeah. And you, do you have a car there just out of curiosity or you bicycle? I bicycle everywhere. I mean, I rent cars and drive quite a bit for work. Um, but, but no, I bike everywhere around, which, you know, is one of the things I love about, you know, living in a city. I will never probably live in a, in a suburb again, just because I, I just really love being able to cycle everywhere. And I think cars, when I was in, I was home over the summer and, you know, I just got so kind of sick of, of having to drive everywhere. Yeah. No, I feel that. I I wouldn't have a car, but it's it's because I go through a gate every day, like an armed gate, being a pedestrian on a bike doing that to go to work is like not a fun experience. Um, I wish it were more pedestrian fun- friendly because I actually don't live far from where I work and I, there's a bike trail that goes there, uh, but it's just not as pedestrian friendly even though germany has like a shit ton of bike lanes everywhere all over the place you can bike across the entire country basically Um, it's nice right it's very different from from kind of how we grew up when you know everyone had a car and if someone didn't have a car it's like well what's wrong with you yeah like what yeah exactly exactly why would you why would you want to bike somewhere (laughs) yes and i i actually drive like a little i have like a 97 Volkswagen Polo and it's a German spec Volkswagen. It's like bright purple. I'm going to drive, like I got so lucky with that car. I've been driving it for four years and it's, it's perfect. So let's pray it lasts for the rest of my time in Germany. Cause it's a terrible time to buy a car right now. Yeah. Not, not very much fun, but yeah, I mean, just parking in Shanghai, I can't like when I drive in the city and I, it's not a very fun city to drive in a lot of China, the roads are very fun and like, it's a, it's a great country to drive in, but I don't love driving in Shanghai. Yeah. I haven't driven in a lot of the countries here because I usually take the train or I fly, but like just the thought of driving somewhere like Paris or Amsterdam, like would be is absolutely terrifying. Like crossing the street and have you been to Amsterdam before? No, I've never been to Amsterdam. Dude, it's, well, you would like it as a cyclist, but the cyclists are like more aggressive than people in cars. (laughs) So when you're crossing the street, you have to like truly be afraid of not getting run over by a bicycle and not necessarily a vehicle. (laughs) I feel like it's it's similar in China, right? But in China, it's like, you know, you can just kind of go, but you figure out the traffic. And as long as you just continue moving the same direction, you're usually fine. But it's, uh, it can be pretty chaotic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, it's definitely, it's definitely different. Um, so the other thing I wanted to just bring up is do you think that, if someone calls themselves sober because they don't drink, but maybe they partake in like recreational activity of like cannabis or psychedelics, um, would you say that it's fair for them to still call themselves sober? Or do you think that being sober is, it can be defined by the person that's, that's saying that. I mean, yeah, I think 
as with any kind of thing, if, if you consider yourself sober, then yeah, I mean, sober can mean not drinking. It can mean not, you know, I know for me, like I wasn't good with any drug, right? Uh, weed, uh, you know, opiates, you name it. Um, and so, you know, the minute that I would smoke weed, I would start drinking again. But I think it's different for different people, right? Um, and I think that's one of the things that the 12-step program is not designed to, you know, 12-step programs are usually completely abstinence-based, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they were written by white dudes who lived in the, in the 30s. Um, <laughs> and they were, you oh. know... Um, and so is it, it works for me. And so I don't, you know, that's not like a a line that I'm willing to try or see or anything like that. Right. But I can also see how the world has changed in a lot of ways. And so just because that doesn't work for any, everybody doesn't mean that it's somehow better for people that it does work for or not. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. And, And the other thing I think a lot about is, you know, these 12-step programs, which are so amorphous in America and, and across the world, right? Um, and the people that it works for are the people that then stay in it and, you know, create the culture, right? And so, how does that culture change if if the people that it don't work, doesn't work for don't get a say in, like, how things change or evolve over time, right? And so, it makes sense, I think, in a lot of ways that a lot of people you know, women, people of color probably don't feel as comfortable in those settings. Um, and I think there's like a, well, that's your fault. You know, there's something wrong with you, but I think it's something that 12 step programs need to, need to do a better job of interrogating. Right. Hmm. I could really see you working and designing something like that or being like at a, at a decision level making role. I think that would be dope because I do think that initially if you kind of looking at that on paper, it like, as you were saying before, it's like an immediate no for me. I'm like, nope. And it's the real, it's the religious aspect truthfully that is like the biggest kind of turnoff. But I feel like the way you're explaining it would open the doors uh, for a lot of people to maybe explore that option that maybe never really considered a life without drinking or, or without drugs, you know, whatever that looks like, but it's, it's tough, but like, you know, those people, but what happens, right. is like, it saves people's lives, right. It saved my life. Um, and like, uh, there's this idea I think of like, Oh, don't change something that saved my life. Right. I'm very protective of it or people are protective of it. And it's, um, and that's great. And like, there's a place for that and it is, you know, incredibly important, but yeah, it's just, I can see, you know, it does not work in China, right? Like uh, most of the 12-step meetings here are foreigners um, and expats. There's, in a city of Shanghai, right, there's one group um, that's pretty small. Um, And it's because, like, you know, it wasn't written by Chinese people in the 30s, right? It was written (laughs) by white dudes in the 30s. And so it makes a lot of sense that it's white dudes now that can relate the most to it. And could it work for them? Yeah, I'm absolutely sure it could, but... Like, that doesn't mean that it's for them, right? It doesn't mean that it's their fault or something like that, right? It's something that I think we have to do a better job looking at. Yeah. Do, do you kind of consider your AA meetings like therapy for you? Or do you do you also see a therapist or? Yeah. Yeah. I saw a therapist for years, actually. Um, 
And I found that really helpful as like a, a supplemental thing, uh, you know, to deal with the, the high school stuff and like, <laughs> like uh, 12 step meetings help a lot. But um, I think that has a place in, in like the whole picture. And I was actually just, just thinking about like, Oh, like I should try better help. Cause it's hard to find a good English speaking native speaker therapist in, in Shanghai. Right. And so I was like, Oh, I should try better help and see what, how that goes. Have you, have you tried it before? No, I haven't. Have you? I haven't. No, but, um, I know a couple people that have and, um, yeah, I mean, do you have, if you have benefits from your job and that's something they would pay for, I would definitely try and go that route. I think it, I think initially it's not as expensive, but depending on like your healthcare, uh, maybe they would cover something like that. That's a good question. It's all in Chinese and, uh, <laughs> uh, and I doubt, uh, like, you know, that's usually not something, uh, that, uh, like China is still 10, 20 years behind when it comes to mental health stuff. Oh, wow. Is it still kind of like a stigma thing? Like anxiety and depression don't exist or it's gotten better. And I think, you know, COVID has changed it because people like are more talking about like, Oh, I'm been stuck in my apartment for two months. I am depressed. Right. But no, it's still very much like, you know, it's not, it's not spoken of like it is in the West. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been seeing the same therapist uh, since I stopped drinking. I actually, I sought her out because I wanted to stop drinking. And I like told during my first session, I was actually hungover and I was telling her this story and she kind of just like stopped and looked at me and she was like, have you ever considered going to AA? And I like that kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. I was like, what? Like. <laughs> It's like my ego was so inflated at that time that I was like, what the fuck? Like, and then I literally stopped drinking that day and never took another fucking sip. So I love that woman for that because she just so calmly like looked into my soul. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And she's actually, so she's Australian, um, but she got her schooling in the state of New York. Oh. And but she's basically German also, so she's retired here. Um, really interesting background, but she's she's really great. I do like virtual sessions with her, so maybe you could, if you can find someone that you feel like you can could connect with. I I don't know if I could see a German therapist. Mm. Just it's the I just I don't know. I feel like again the direct communication with Germans. That's just not how. Like I'm too, I'm sensitive, you know, I don't even mean it like that, but that's just how it comes, comes off. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, even when you know that it's like, Oh, like, ouch, dude, you know? No, ab- absolutely. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think with this stuff, like figure out something that works for you and that you're happy with and, and try not to be close-minded is what I try to do right. And so therapy is a part of that. 12-step meetings are a big part of that. But, you know, it, it might that might change. Um, you know, I think 12-step meetings will always be a part, but there might be other stuff. You know, maybe I want to become a Buddhist or, or, or who knows, right? But I just think, yeah, like an open mind and uh, investigating that stuff, whatever it is, is, is yeah, it's important. And and you know i don't have i know what's worked for me and that's you know when people come to me and say hey you know what should i do i suggest that often but that doesn't mean it works for everyone yeah 
Yeah, I agree. I think remaining open in all aspects is is really important because I like I was actually just thinking about this the other day back in my like early 20s working at breweries. I used to I remember myself saying like I don't trust people who don't drink. <laughs> and I like I really dislike myself for saying that because now I'm someone that doesn't drink, but it's like some of these false realities that we create and sort of cling to as our narrative. Um, and as you sort of like move into a new story or a new chapter, um, letting go of those narratives and not letting them dictate choices you make now, uh, I think is like a reoccurring lesson mm. for me in my sobriety. Um, I think in life, but I think that's a, like a big it. life thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it's been just like dialed in with like, oh, you don't drink anymore. And like, you don't have to hate yourself for when you used to drink, you know? Yeah. Accepting that kind of. It's hard. That, that as was fun. formative. Yeah, that is hard. It's, it's really hard to be like, oh, that was the best I could do then. Right. Even today. Yeah. Uh, like, I feel like even being sober now, it's like, oh, I did that sober. Um <laughs> And it's like, that was the best that I could do in that moment. And I have to accept like past Dan was doing his best and, you know, future Dan doesn't get to like hold that against him. Yes. And that's tough. That is very tough. It really, it just, it takes a moment of peace. Like you have, I think sometimes acceptance really is sort of this like unlocking key to a lot of different situations. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah, just like things with like inner child and like doing your shadow work and things like that. Those were things I could have never had the mental capacity for if I was still drinking because alcohol kind of keeps your ego. I feel like in this sort of elevated headspace. Um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, almost like a balloon around it kind of. Well, I think it's like, it's, you know, if, if you have a relationship to it and that's what it becomes, right? Then absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, do you, have you ever found yourself like pondering or rem or like imagining yourself having a drink because you just, you feel stable and like you're in a good place in your life and you could control it this time or something like, do you ever find yourself daydreaming about something like a scenario like that? Yeah, I think I think everyone does that sober, right? I mean, I know all of my friends have talked about this. Um and I definitely think, you know, occasionally it comes up, but I think it's easier for me because, you know, you moved abroad while you were while you were drinking and so you had some capacity for life, right? Um and I was living in my parents' basement when I was drinking. And so there's really no there's no big illusion for me that I could do life and be, and be drinking. Um, and, uh, you know, even like, you know, recently, you know, I was having a stressful time and like, uh, you know, I haven't vaped, I hadn't vaped for like three years and I was like, Oh, I can vape a little bit. Like I go to the gym every day. I won't, this won't become a thing. Um, and like, here I am fucking vaping. Um, and you know, like really, uh, you know, unhappy at myself about it, but for whatever reason, like that's my personality. Right. And that's, and that's what I do. And so I, I have almost no illusion that, you know, this time I would be able to con- control and enjoy my drinking. Cause it's just not, I've never been able to do it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I've had I've had the fantasy of like, oh, like I'm going to Paris and I just want to drink a glass of champagne under the Eiffel. You know what I mean? Like those are like the thoughts that I have and I'm like, no, that's not it'll be like a bottled down and I'm like face planted underneath the Eiffel Tower, you know? Like it's, Yep. 100% bottled down, I'll be face planted or like you know, lost in Paris, arrested in Paris, like Absolutely. Yeah. I, my life would not, would not go particularly well if I drank. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I've kind of let go of that. Yeah, me too. And I think sometimes it, it's still, I think it will, it's natural for it to come up. And I think I am like more accepting of it coming up now because I just sort of let those those thoughts sort of float on by. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's probably the key is like, those thoughts are so normal right but i have to just remember that that yeah that tent doesn't work for me (laughs) yeah what would you like if if a friend reached out to you right now and was like hey like i don't think i should be drinking anymore i know we kind of touched on this but like what would be the first thing you would tell them to do or would you just try it like in that moment would you just try to be a supportive friend instead of giving advice or would you sort of encourage them to take like a different type of step? I mean, if they said, you know, what do you think I should do? I would probably say try a 12 step meeting um, because that's what I have experience with. And that's what kind of worked for me. And um, that would be the first thing that I'd say to try. And, and if they didn't like that um, or if they didn't feel like that was going to work for them, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably say try to be helpful to someone. Try to get out of yourself, right? I think that's one of the big things that comes with alcohol is like just a, a self-obsession that we all suffer from, right? Like it's part of being fucking human. Is like I think about myself all the time, right? Um, mm. But those moments when I can get out of myself and think about others, like those are the times when I feel the best. And so I'd encourage them to try to do that. Yeah. Find what brings you joy and fill your cup. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Even though sometimes it's like, you know, um, my idea of what that will be is not always the best. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I definitely agree with that. Um, I found myself that the longer I get into my sobriety, that it's opened up spaces that like truly bring me joy. And when I'm experiencing them for the first time in this new chapter that I'm in or whatever, it just brings me this, like, it makes tears well up in my eyes. Like it's this deep joy that I haven't allowed myself to have in so long or that in some way alcohol was like blocking me from achieving, um, so I think that's really important is to guide people to the spaces that like create that safeness for them to experience like deeper feelings. Uh, Com- instead completely of just, like, agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I know just for me, that was initially 12 step meetings. Right. And so that would be the place that I'd say like, Oh, try that. Right. Hmm. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I I'm just like in awe of what you've done. I love that you live in China. Like that's just so crazy <laughs> to me. Um, I've never traveled anywhere over there. So um, it definitely has like sparked 
some thoughts and um yeah, I'm wishing you all the best. And it's it's awesome that you also got to go home this summer. I feel like that was probably pretty epic. It was lovely. Yeah, it was really nice to see family and friends. And uh, I forgot how bad the food was in Lansing. And I think oh it's gotten God. worse, but it is awful. <laughs> no. Did you, where does your brother live? Is he still in the Lansing area? Or? One brother lives in Denver and one brother still lives in Lansing. And you got, did you get to see both of them when you were home? Well, we went to Ireland for a couple of weeks as a family. Oh, so okay. I saw my oh. older brother when we were in Ireland. Um, and then I saw my younger brother again when we were back home. So, but yeah, it was, oh. it was really, it was really nice. And uh, it's funny, like I, I got done with that and I'm just more grateful to live in China. Like I loved it. I love seeing everyone, but like, I don't really want to live there. I don't feel a great connection to that physical space anymore like I do here. Um, so yeah, it was really, it was really nice and like perspective building, which was amazing. Yeah. It's always, it it's always interesting to return, you know, quote unquote home when you've kind of created a home in another place that's like totally foreign. Exactly. Absolutely. And yeah, it was, it's been lovely to, to catch up and, and talk to you and congratulations on, you know, two years. I know that the first two years are the hardest. So, um, uh, it just, I think it just gets easier in a lot of ways. It gets harder in other ways, but easier in some, in, in a lot of ways too. So. Yeah, it'll be three years in March. So I feel oh, like I'm on. Nice. Yeah. That's like pretty exciting, pretty crazy. So super pumped about it. As you should be. And yeah, I'm excited to hear what happens with the rest of the podcast. So. Yeah, you're going to, the two other people, um, Kate Williams and Matthew Baton, she lives in Washington State and she's a therapist there, but she actually found me on Instagram uh, because I joined this like sober girls society. So I've actually never met Kate in person, but we've created this like bond via um, the internet and she's just such an awesome, like, I feel like you'll really love the interview with her. She's awesome. And then Matthew is just like an old friend from Grand Rapids and he's just been like kind of a shining light also for me, sort of like a beacon. And I love, I love the internet for these kinds of reasons that um, each of you was sort of this like beacon of light for me in the beginning of my sobriety. So I have a lot of, a lot of gratitude. Well, that's really lovely to hear. Thank you. I feel like I've done very little, but um that's still, yeah, that's lovely. So yeah, you know, congrats and enjoy. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Lunar Cat's third series about sobriety. Thank you to Dan Dunn for taking time out of your day and sharing your sober journey with us. You are so appreciated and we look forward to all the cool things that you're going to do in the future. Thank you to everyone who's a returning listener. It means so much to me. Uh, Lunar Cats would not be what it is without my listeners. So thank you.